Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. We're here still in Lourdes on our pilgrimage, and we're sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. And Robert, our, our luxurious corner booth got a little more luxurious today, didn't it? It really did on this last day of our, our Lourdes pilgrimage, or towards the end of it. That's, it's a wonderful thing. We have a wonderful guest, and we, you know we've had so many great guests from the Order of Malta, but never one like this before, Deacon Jeff. That's right. I think this is our first prince, as a matter of fact. Is I don't it think not? we've ever had a prince and a grandmaster. Well, uh, we're, the order. We're, we're topping all kinds of records today. Yeah. Well, let's not hesitate to introduce our guest here. It's His Eminent Highness from Matthew Festing, the Prince and Grandmaster of the Sovereign Military Hospitaller Order of Saint John of Jerusalem of Rhodes and of Malta. And if you don't mind, Your Highness, we'll just call that the Order of Malta. That's what we are. <laughs> if that's all right. Yes, I feel as if that must be by. 15 people present, not 15. <laughs> well, you're a fine example of a man. We appreciate you being here so much with us. Well, what we thought, Your Highness, is maybe, well, first of all, when people, when we introduce you as uh, the Prince and Grand Master of the Order of Malta, a lot of people might, uh, some of our listeners might be a little confused in terms of like, oh, Prince, uh, are you Prince of some kind of country or something? Or kind of explain that relationship. What does the Order of Malta need a Prince for? How does that work? That works because... Um, At the beginning of the 17th century, as a result of the defense of Christendom, um, the Battle of Lepanto, uh, the Siege of Malta, uh, and and various other things that the Order did, the Holy Roman Emperor of the period uh, made the Grand Master of the period and every subsequent Grand Master, so it's rather as if it's a sort of hereditary arrangement, he made him a Prince of the Holy Roman Empire. And then, of course, when the Holy Roman Empire... um, um, was done away with, uh, he then automatically became a prince of the Austrian Empire. So that's where the title comes from, the same way that um, various other people in in Europe are princes of the the empire. So that's where where that title comes from. And then, of course, it's also partly to do with the fact that that, um, the, the, the... former Grand Masters ruled the island of Malta, too. So that's, it's a sort of double, it's a double, the actual title comes from Austria. Do you rule a country today, Your Highness, or is that, is that what the Order of Malta is doing today? No, mercifully not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> mercifully not, because when the Order was originally founded, of course, it was, it was founded in order to look after the poor and the sick. And then almost by, um, I suppose you could say almost by accident, um, or by the, what happened in history, um, the order then in due course ruled Rhodes, and then subsequently Malta. So it, it had this business of actually running two small countries, if you like. Um, and then when Napoleon uh, appeared on the scene at the end of the 18th century, that was the end of our period running the island of Malta. So since... 1798, we have had no, um, no responsibility for any actual country. Um, and I often think what a relief that is, because it means that we can all concentrate on what we should be doing. Well, let's talk about what we should be doing, because <laughs> we've, we've had some awesome guests here at the Catholic Cafe uh, since we've been on this pilgrimage. We've had uh, uh, several, several knights and dames and, and many people associated with the Order of Malta, and they've told us all these interesting things that the Order is, is involved in and doing very well. And maybe if you could give us maybe sort of a big picture. Right. What is the Order of Malta? Well, um, it's a complicated, it's a very complicated picture, 
And it's very much, I think, what one would call a bottom-up organization rather than a top-down, um, because what works in one country doesn't necessarily work in another. And I find myself sitting, as it were, at the sort of apex of the pyramid, looking down at what's going on underneath. And it's, it very much differs, it very much differs from country to country, because the emphasis that is put um, in some countries on, for the sake of argument, looking after victims of disaster is very different from other countries where there aren't likely to be disasters, there aren't likely to be things like hurricanes or earthquakes, and probably not wars either. So in those countries, um, an awful huge amount of emphasis is put on the business of probably social work of various sorts. They're looking after drug addicts or street children or um, those sort of, of, of activities, much more so than in the other countries where, and certainly in the third world, where we're very busy dealing with, I mean, Haiti would be a very, very good example, um, but in the middle of Germany you don't see very many hurricanes. Kings. Do you see what I mean? Or earthquakes. So it, it, it very much varies from place to place, but the emphasis across the world is looking after the poor and the sick and the disadvantaged of whatever, I mean, whatever form they, they happen to appear. Now, I know you have, a, uh, you have a twofold mission, do you not? Obviously, the caring of the sick and poor, and we've had many, many guests talking about the various aspects there. But then that other uh, aspect of the, of the mission, uh, which from, from ancient times has been uh, the defense of the faith. And how does, how does that play out? Well, that is, funnily enough, you've, you've just said something which is inaccurate because ah. it's not the defense. That would be a first time okay. on the okay. Catholic Yeah, Catholic yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's every day, Deacon Jack. Interesting, <laughs> interesting, because, because it's not, in fact, it's tuitio fidei, and tuitio doesn't translate into defense. Tuitio um, translates into tuition. That's where the word tuition comes from. Will you from. pay money for an education? Ah, that not quite that either. <laughs> okay. it, it, it means, it means um, when you think about it, the, the word tuition is, is it comes of a schoolmaster with children. That's what, it, that's what it's from. Um, and, or that's what's derived from. And of course it's, it's a question of nurturing the faith, teaching the faith, um, bringing the faith on rather like a man in a greenhouse um, planting little seeds which subsequently grow into big plants. That's where the idea comes from. And so what is interesting, of course, is that in the last, I suppose, possibly even 100 years, certainly 60 years, the order has um, concentrated very much on the obsequium pauperum, i.e. the looking after the poor and the sick, and has, I don't say forgotten, but has not put its emphasis on the tuitio fidei bit. Um, and one of the things that I think in the future we have to perhaps look at is what we can do to help with the, um, with the business of nurturing the faith, which actually what is interesting is what you're doing on the program is, of course, a very good example of something which is very much in that line and not in the line of the obsequium piper. Do you see now in this modern age uh, a real need for this uh, building up and understanding of the faith because we have lots of uh, problems with secularization in Europe and we have all things going on now that uh, and really demand a, a focus on this. In the United States too, Deacon Jeff, a lot of people don't seem to know their faith. And I mean, Is Christian education or is, is that an area where you see the need for us to have radio programs and universities and things like that to uh, 
help grow people's understanding of the faith? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that's the case. I mean, I'm, I'm um, sufficiently old to have spent my childhood just before, if you like, just before the Second Vatican Council. So when I was a little boy, we were brought up to learn the old catechism, the penny catechism, yeah. more or less by rote. Yeah. And so um, the thing was simple, and by the time you were 10 years old, you knew your faith because it had been put to you in a very simple way. Well, the changes in the church have made become much more complicated, and people now don't have that very basic, very simple knowledge, I don't think. Um, and because education in general has become more complicated, many more subjects are taught and so forth and so on, even in the Catholic schools, you get people who come out of school and they don't really know the basic tenets of the faith. And that's why I think it's extreme. I mean, a, a program like this is a very, very good example. Well, see, here's the Order of Malta at work in one other, one other way, right? In yeah. Helping, well, helping it is, that is, and of course it also goes back to what I was taking, talking about at the beginning of this business of, of the organization being a bottom-up rather than top-down organization. So right. it's a very good, exactly what we're sitting here talking about is an exact example of a development of what we're now doing. The order, in fact, over time, doesn't it, hasn't it changed to adapt to the needs of the particular time? And isn't that one of the things that makes the, the order unique? Yes. I think that's true. Um, I think that's very true. Funnily enough, when you're on the inside of the tent looking out, you're so busy, I guess, um, responding to, to what happens, responding to changes, um, seeing your way through things, that you actually possibly lose sight of the business of all the, of all the changes that you have to make. Whereas somebody looking at it from the outside, somebody the other day, I was very interested, a rabbi friend of mine the other day, it was very interesting, he said, yours is an extraordinary organization because for 900 years it's survived, it's changed its emphasis in various ways, it's changed its makeup, it does different things to what it did when it started. But he, was, he said the really striking thing, looking at it not only from... from outside the order, but indeed outside the Christian faith even. He said it's an extraordinary organization because it's changed so many times. It's had so many different circumstances, and it's still going at the end of it in a slightly different form. And he said that's an extraordinary thing. And, of course, it's, it's, it's incredibly important because any organization which is to survive has to be also capable of changing from time to time. Well, that would give you the impression that it was alive, right? That it was alive and well and doing, Absolutely. Uh, growing. I think it's very, I think it's interesting. Any, any organization, for instance, any Christian organization, any, any organization within the church, either has to be something which changes continuously or changes absolutely not at all. Right. I'm always fascinated when I go to an orthodox mass that you, there you've got something in general terms which has not changed at all for a huge period of time. That's another interesting aspect. And, and I think we are seeing, for instance, in the religious orders, the orders which are concentrating on, on, the, on the, exactly what they did 500 years ago or 1,500 years ago, they are the ones that are getting the right. vocations and the ones that, that, that change 
continuously don't. So you have to be kind of one or the other, I guess. Well, could we say, uh, Your Highness, that the message never changes? It's how we deliver the message. It's how we adapt. The need for the poor and the need to teach the truth never changes. It's yes. how we do it and how it's we how we do it. it. And, of course, you know, if we were having this conversation um, for the sake of argument 700 years ago, yeah. um, we wouldn't be doing it over the radio, would we? I mean, it's, we, we, have to, we have to change all the time. We have to adapt to the methods which are available to us. It's hugely important. And if you don't, well, you'll get left behind. Well, speaking of getting left behind, we don't want to get left behind because we have another segment coming up uh, right after we take a real quick break. Uh, Before we do that, I want to remind everyone at home that we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com, and also ask you to email me. Send me some uh, wonderful ideas about future shows, and the email address is deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. So now with that, we'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. St. Thomas More was born in London, England in 1478, son of Sir John More, a prominent judge. After receiving a firm grounding in religion and the classics, he decided to follow in the footsteps of his father and pursue a career in law. He studied law at Oxford, where he also continued to pursue his love of Greek and Latin literature. He did well among the elite in the inner societal circles, making many new and influential friends, including both bishops and scholars. But he also became a man torn between his father's world of civil service and his eternal father's world of the church. In fact, he submitted himself to the discipline of the Carthusian monks living at a nearby monastery, and he seriously considered joining their order. St. Thomas's desire for the religious life was finally overcome by his greatly felt calling to serve the common good through governance and politics. But his devotions to prayer, fasting, and penance would remain with him and serve him well the rest of his life. He became a barrister and was soon headed for Parliament where he became known as fair-minded and impartial and a friend to the poor. After several years of successful service, St. Thomas More caught the eye of King Henry VIII. St. Thomas garnered the King's favor and was made Speaker of the House of Commons, then eventually Lord Chancellor. All was going well for St. Thomas when his meteoric rise to prominence came to an abrupt halt. Unfortunately, King Henry sought permission from the Pope in Rome to divorce his wife Catherine of Aragon and marry his new love, Anne Boleyn. St. Thomas, well-versed in church law and devoted to her teachings, knew that the king's sacramental bond to Catherine was indissoluble and refused to endorse the king's plan. When the king severed ties with the universal church and decreed himself to be head of the church in England, St. Thomas More resigned his post. He was eventually imprisoned in the Tower of London, along with his friend John Fisher, the only Catholic bishop who had refused to acknowledge King Henry VIII as the new head of the church. The two men were tried for treason and put to death within days of each other. Before he was beheaded in 1535, St. Thomas More quietly said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. St. Thomas More is the patron saint of lawyers. His feast day is June 22nd. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history.
Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff. And, of course, uh, joined here with my uh, wonderful guest, His Eminent Highness, from Matthew Festing, the Prince and Grand Master of the Order of Malta. And we are so honored to have you here uh, oh, thanks, uh, with thanks us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, so we're talking about the Order of Malta, of course. And we used the word in that last segment we talked about. We said the word unique. How is the Order of Malta unique in, in, its, in its structure? Um, well, what is interesting, of course, is that we're having this conversation in 2011. And as a result of that, that's why you're asking the question. If we were sitting here in, for the sake of argument, 1200, we wouldn't be asking the question because at that period there were a number of lay orders in the church and um, hospital, particularly other, other hospitaller orders too, which existed at the time. Now, because of circumstances... It happens that the Order of St. John, which is what the Order of Malta's proper name is, it is the only one that has survived. But what does it mean to be a lay order? You mentioned well, a lay order. Well, ag- again, this is, uh, it, it is something which, which we have preserved and nobody else has. I think to be strictly accurate, the Brothers of St. John of God, at a technical level, I think they are the same, I think, because they are, again, and we're both of us, are orders which are run by laymen. Say, I'm, here am I as the head of the order, but I'm not a priest, I'm not even a deacon, I'm simply an ordinary layman. And I'm an extraordinary layman. No. <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> but the answer is, the answer is that that's where, that's where our uniqueness comes from. Because within the order, we may have 13,000 members, um, but within the order there are about between 50 and 70 people who, like me, have made their religious vows. So the three vows, chastity, poverty, and obedience. And so there are about between 50 and 70 of us who, as it were, are at the core of the order. And that is what makes us a religious order. Everybody else, as it were, is, if you like, sort of auxiliaries, rather like an oblate in, 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 say, a Benedictine Mm -hmm. monastery, who are associated with the order and support the order and indeed are members of it, but are not actually at the core of it. And as I say, there were other organizations which were like that, but they have all, for one reason or another, died out, and we are the only one left. Is this an important aspect of the order, to, to have a religious? Is that religious component important to the Order of Malta? Uh, absolutely vital to it. I mean, it's, it's completely, it's what, it's, it, you know, it's what gives it, I don't know what you'd say, I suppose it's so, really, because um, if we didn't, if we were not a religious order, we would simply be... In like any other sort of, you know, like a secular institute. I mean, a we cl- would be charitable like, club. Or yes, a charitable club or a charitable society. So that's what gives us the difference. That's what makes us different from everybody else because we are actually a proper religious order. And then, of course, you mentioned, you mentioned Benedictines or Franciscans. The other interesting thing is that um, we are, in fact, certainly the fourth, possibly the third oldest of all the religious orders, by far the oldest lay order, and even um, the scholars tell us that some of the um, um, rules of the orders that, that we see, say, for instance, the rule um, of the Augustinians, the scholars will tell you that some of those um, early rules are actually based on the rule of the Order of Malta rather than Very the other way around, yeah. which Very is extraordinary, really. But apparently the scholars tell us that that's the case. Now, you're a religious order, mm-hmm. right? And so that tells me that uh, 
maybe like some of the other orders, that there's a, there's a calling, right, a vocation. There's a calling to this religious life. Uh, what are, how does someone know if maybe they're called to something like the Order of Malta? Well, <laughs> there we are. It's rather like saying, um, how do you know that you're called to be a priest or how do you know that you're called to be a monk? Um, I mean, the answer is that, that usually what happens, I was. If you wait for the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, to send sort of shafts of light and, light and thunderbolts to you, you can wait a very long time, because it's not the way he does it. I received an engraved invitation, from him, <laughs> which was very nice. I appreciate it. But, that. I mean, in, in your own case, for instance, in your own case, I presume that what happened is that you, you began to have a sort of think about it, and then maybe one day somebody said... Um, what about you becoming a deacon or whatever it is? And say, the way the Holy Spirit works is that he usually does it through other people. In my own case, I can tell you, here we are, we're sitting at Lourdes, I can tell you that I was inspired to do it here. And and Lourdes is a powerful place. That was truly a miracle then, wasn't it? I don't think a miracle, but what I'm getting at is that, that, that it, it, it is a proper vocation. And actually, funny enough, in some ways, it's a very difficult vocation because somebody who is a monk in a monastery has the support of the community. It has the support of his brother monks who he sees every hour of every day, whereas the, the, the professed knight of the order very often doesn't see the other professed knights for two or three months at a time. Um, and so it's a difficult vocation because you have to be doing it under your own, you know, you have to be disciplined, you have to, you know, say to yourself, gosh, you know, it is six o'clock, I must say Vespers, or however you conduct your life. So it, it, in that respect, I think it's a difficult vocation. Um, but it's, in a way, funnily enough, I think it's, it's a wonderful vocation because um, it allows you to do your ordinary job. I mean, you can, as I say, it doesn't matter what you are, you can be a teacher or a doctor or whatever it is. Or even a lawyer. Or, or even a lawyer, whatever it is. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it enables you to have a, this sort of, you know, I don't say double life quite, but it allows you to, to, to conduct your ordinary day-to-day life but with a, in a religious context. context. To and consecrate way, to God. Yeah, exactly. And I think, in, funnily enough, I think in a way... Um, you know, things rather like, I'm always interested in something like Opus Dei, because you see, they, people think that they've invented something new. Well, they haven't invented it new at all. We invented it, you know, nearly a thousand years ago. So it's, 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 it's a sort of, um, it's, you know, we, 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 we have something, I think we've, we've spotted something all those centuries ago, which actually is very relevant today. Most of the people originally, of course, were, were crusaders. Um, what happened was that they went to Palestine, they captured Jerusalem, and they were inspired then to look after the poor pilgrims. And because most of them happened by chance, because they were crusaders, had been professional soldiers, when the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem came under threat, um, Baldwin I, who was the king of the Latin, of, of, uh, Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, said, you guys are all 
in origin professional soldiers, as well as looking after the poor and the sick, would you kindly defend the place as well? So that's, that's where the military aspect of the order came from. Again, a practical need at that time. A practical need at the time. And oddly enough, you see, that continued in very slightly differing forms. That continued up until the very end of the 18th century. Now we have no military. But the needs of the world today are clear. Right, and so I, I think it's we, we should reiterate the again the the importance of the mission of the order, uh, still caring for the sick and the poor, and to propagate the faith uh, are vital in this day and age. And, and maybe those uh, uh, those lay vocations are vitally important for people to maybe consider a call and to think about what God is asking them to do. It may or may not be uh, in coming and, and serving Him uh, through the works of the order, but perhaps it is, and they should be open to that. Maybe they're hearing this radio program now. I don't know. <laughs> yes, well, that's true. I mean, it, it, people are very inspired by it, and there's something, there's certainly, um, the, the important thing is, is, is what we call the hospitaler aspect of the vacation. I mean, you can't really be a successful night of Malta if you're not interested in some way in helping the poor and the sick, because it's vital to it. Um, I mean, you know, we're not choir monks, we're not a teaching order, um, we're not a missionary order, we are basically what, what the title of the thing says it is. It says it's hospitalers, and that's what it is. We, we've, 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 we've preserved the word military in amongst it, which I think in many ways, of various people have argued, um, that actually we should abandon the, the word military in our title. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of sense in that, because that was, um, again, <laughs> it's all to do with translating things, right. because, of course, the business of you know, modern English translates it into the word military, which has completely different connotations. Actually, it's to do, it's, it's, it's a translation of the word miles, and miles comes to, to an extent, it's, it's, um, it, it, means, it, it means a soldier to an extent, but it also means a knight too. So it's, 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 that's where that, that connotation comes from. So, for instance, in, in um, Germany and Austria, um, you see a thing which says Ritter Orden, so Knight's Order. And it doesn't actually say military anywhere. Right. Your Highness, this has been so in- inspiring, so enlightening. It's, it's great to hear uh, all about the Order of Malta, and we really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us here today. I heard a talk you gave last evening, and you, you mentioned the, uh, the second Grand Master wrote the original rule of the Order. Uh, and I think that someone was telling me that maybe the first rule had something to do with how many times you said the Our Father every day. Is that, is that true? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I think how many times? It was a lot of times. Well, I tell you, one of, the, one of the things that, of course, they had to do was to be able to get round the Holy Land, the Middle East. They had to be able to ride a camel or ride a horse, or even walk, for that matter. And therefore, the business of walking along or riding along with your breviary open saying your office is rather difficult. I so can imagine. They <laughs> cleverly invented the business of saying a hundred our fathers. So, and I have tried it, and it's very difficult. Well, and we, it's what they call a bit repetitive. We, uh, <laughs> we, always, uh, we always close this uh, program with a prayer, so I thought that today perhaps we would say our 101st uh, Our Father today. We would, let's pray the Our Father as a closing. Would that be all right? Absolutely. Very appropriate. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Yeah. Our Father, who, who art in heaven, heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.